This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're going to talk to California's new senator, Senator Alex Padilla. He was California's Secretary of State until Governor Gavin Newsom appointed him to fill the remaining two years of now Vice President Kamala Harris's term. Our chat today is a little bit different in that we're not going to go heavy on policy or talk a lot of politics, but I wanted everyone to hear more about Senator Padilla's background, as he will be the first Latino to represent California in the Senate, and he is the child of Mexican immigrants. Those who know Alex Padilla and have followed him for some time uh, know him as someone who's very measured in the way he speaks. He graduated from MIT with an engineering degree, uh, so they may be a bit surprised to hear him get very emotional when we're talking today. Uh, And that happens when he's talking about his family and how their struggles shaped him and how he says that will shape the type of senator he aims to be. And now, here's my conversation with Senator Alex Padilla. Alex Padilla, from your office in Washington, D.C., to my home in Oakland, welcome back to It's All Political. For the first time as Senator Alex Padilla, congratulations, Aguri, to you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. It's uh, It's been a whirlwind week, a roller coaster of uh, emotion, reflection, and a lot of history being made. Yes, a lot of history that you've been a part of. Uh, what, a few years ago, when I interviewed the uh, now Vice President Harris uh, in, in, um, on a campaign stop in Bakersfield, and, uh, and, and it's, you know, the, the rap on her for years when she was very too, so cautious, and she said, well, I've got my day job as the state's lawyer, I can't be doing these things. And I asked her, um, you know, will that change? And she said, I almost feel like my hands are tied. Uh, and then two years later, she had the most liberal voting record in the Senate, I was talking to your uh, longtime friend, uh, Fabian Nunez, uh, the other day, former head of the uh, California uh, Assembly, and he says he could see the same dynamic happening for you. You spent the last six years in a job that's largely apolitical. You're not, you're not somebody who goes off on polemics. You're always very measured. But do you feel now that your hands will be untied in some way? Well, I don't know if uh, I'd call my last six years very measured. Uh, very proud of all the work that we did as, as Secretary of State. I'd say maybe we're just very focused, right? There are official duties and responsibilities in the Secretary of State's office, but you know we did more to create a large and inclusive democracy uh, in California, more so than any other state, while also protecting our elections from cyber threats and uh, disinformation and, and everything else. Uh, maybe that's why I'm relishing this opportunity in the U.S. Senate, because I get to have a formal role and voice on behalf of California and all the pressing issues facing our state uh, and facing the nation. You know, look forward to engaging in health care and comprehensive immigration reform and climate change, criminal justice reform and more. Uh, but uh, let's be clear, the most urgent, critical issue is a better response to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Now, for those who don't know your story, uh, you often refer to your parents, uh, immigrants from Mexico. They met, in, uh, they met in Los Angeles, got their green cards there. Your dad was a line cook, uh, Santos, for many years. Your mom, Lupe, uh, cleaned houses. And you have an experience like unlike just about any other senator, I would imagine. Um, and the other day, I heard you talking about the, this, about the cost of the naturalization application itself when we're talking about immigration reform. You said it's cost prohibitive. This is something that I have not heard really from any other senator talk about that. How much of that is about your lived experience? Uh, you've, you've seen your folks, your, your, your friends, your family go through that. Talk about how that is. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, so many of these issues are personal to me. You know, I'll come back to uh, the naturalization application, but, you know, just thinking of COVID itself, as you mentioned, my dad was a short order cook and we've seen what the uh, pandemic has done to the restaurant industry, those struggling to, to stay open or those that have been shuttered. My mom uh, used to clean houses and we think of domestic workers today, only one of two fates, either that their increased uh, risk of exposure to the virus or they've lost their jobs and their livelihoods. And so this is very personal to me. Uh, on this naturalization front, yes, a lot of important conversation uh, about the various elements of an immigration package when it comes to naturalization itself. Uh, we can talk about the time frame. You know, I, I'd like to bring the proposed eight-year uh, wait time down, uh, if at all possible. But, you know, to your point, the cost of it itself you know, very out of reach for so many people. It's got to be more affordable. We know that eligible uh, immigrants becoming citizens is good for everybody. Uh, it's a reflection of people wanting to commit to this country. It's a reflection of people, you know, wanting to participate, uh, not just in elections, but but broadly, civically. And we know it's great for the economy. So uh, it's a win-win all the way around, and we should be facilitating it, uh, not making it harder. And you know, why is it personal to me? I remember, you know, when my parents uh, applied and received their green cards, it's not a permanent green card. You have to renew uh, every few years. And whether it's making sure we're saving up enough for the right time uh, and going down to uh, uh, the, the, the office, the federal offices downtown and waiting in line, sometimes hours at a time to make sure that paperwork was done, people will climb mountains to be able to come to the United States, stay in the United States, become citizens of the United States. That's what makes our country great. And you, you remember your parents going through that, correct? No, because uh, I remember it vividly because they'd take the kids. You know, we couldn't afford a, a separate child, you know, care or babysitter. And so we'd go out there, you know, pack a, pack a lunch, sometimes pack a dinner too, because we weren't sure how long we'd be waiting in those lines uh, and waited out with uh, many, many other families uh, in line to do the same. Now, you grew up in uh, Pacoima in the, in the San Fernando Valley, one of three kids. Uh, again, not a lot of money, uh, as you alluded to. Then you went to MIT, and you, I, I imagine, we've never really talked about this, but I, I, I imagine the experience that you had with, there's a, you know, was similar to a lot of kids who come from families, not a lot of money, they go to elite schools. Uh, it's, it's a tough navigation process. Uh, you would probably went to school with a lot of kids who didn't have to struggle going up, who didn't have to do that, you know, go down to the immigration office like that. How did you, how did you, who might not be working in college, how did you navigate that? And why did that, sh that experience shape you? You know, it's, um, uh, I, I break it down this way, you know, not, not a day went by growing up that my parents didn't make it absolutely clear to my sister to my brother and I, that the reason they worked so hard, the reason they sacrificed was so that us, the next generation, could have more opportunity and a better life in the United States. 
uh, runs right through getting a good education. And so graduating from high school, going to college wasn't a goal. Uh, it was an expectation of us. And, uh, you know, we respected our parents so much, we, we were not going to disappoint. We were not going to let them down. So uh, despite the fact that I had never been east of El Paso when I graduated from high school, wow. you know, wow. kind of flew blindly to uh, Logan Airport in Boston and, you know, di did my best to get through MIT. Yes, it was tough. You know, we're you know, studying alongside uh, students that didn't have the, the, the challenges to overcome that we did. But I knew that to be able to graduate from MIT was not just an opportunity of a lifetime for me. Uh, it was the fulfillment of my parents' dreams. And I couldn't let them down. So, uh, you know, we got some scholarships along the way, uh, took out some loans along the way, um, and, and worked along the way as well. I had to work my way through college. Do what it took. That's what I saw my parents doing each and every day. You know, and, and it, it's why, uh, you know, again, other issues that become personal for me. I uh, look forward to working with uh, Senator Warren uh, and Senator Sanders and others on forgiving uh, student debt uh, that has been uh, you know, so uh, uh, difficult for the, the current generation of recent college graduates. You know, how do you graduate from college, enter a workforce during a pandemic, the inability to, to keep up with those loans uh, while the financial industry is just making money hand over fist? There's got to be a better way. Do you remember how much student loan debt you had when you, you were coming out? Oh, my gosh. It, we'll, we'll put it this way. Uh, I remember uh, when I was applying for financial aid for college, looking at my dad's W-2s uh, back in 1989, 1990. Uh, his income was about $19,000 a year. Uh, tuition alone at MIT was 19500 Oh, my God. That, that wasn't, Jesus. you know, room and board. That wasn't books. That wasn't, you know, travel, you know, going home for Christmas. Uh, so talk about college affordability. Absolutely. We know what it's like to scrap for it and scrape for it uh, and work for it. Uh, and uh, we got to make living the American dream easier for future generations. We'll have more of my conversation with Senator Alex Padilla after this short break. And now here's more of my conversation with Senator Alex Padilla. When you came back home, uh, you, you uh, got involved in, in politics. I mean, you, there was a, a talk, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, about the transition from that. You worked for Hughes Aircraft for a while. You wrote software, uh, which is probably something that a lot of a few other senators have done. Uh, but you, like a whole other generation of, uh, of uh, Latinos in, in California, uh, got involved in the sort of the Prop uh, 80, 187 movement. Um, Talk a little bit how you how you uh, how do you leave MIT with a with a with an aerospace degree and then get involved? You ran the, the campaign of now Congressman Tony Cardenas, who you grew up with a couple blocks away in the San Fernando Valley. I didn't know that until recently. Um, how did that show you about the what did one eighty seven and your college experience tell you about the difference between the way you and your dad grew up and how that how did that kind of politicize you? Uh, honestly, I think for me it started uh, a little bit when I was in high school. Right. I grew up playing baseball, uh, Little League, three years in high school, uh, and it was taking those weekly uh, bus trips to other schools throughout the Valley, throughout Los Angeles, that I began to see the inequities, right? Why are all these other schools uh, a lot bigger, newer, and in better shape than mine? Why are the communities that we're driving through seem to be in, in, in much better shape than where I grew up? Uh, and so I knew that uh, uh, whatever I did career-wise, you know, I would come home after MIT and work, you know, maybe it's just as a volunteer, 
to address those inequities, never dreaming that I could have a full-time job in that called public service. Uh, the other thing is specifically the environment that I came home to in 1994, fresh home from college, you know, and we talked about my parents, their journey, their struggle, me graduating from MIT, not just a, a chance of a lifetime for me, but the fulfillment of their dreams. And I come home to political ads that included the governor of California at the time saying California is going downhill and it is the fault of families like yours and people like your parents. I was offended. I was insulted. I was enraged. And I knew right then and there that while my, my engineering degree was <laughs> you know, well-earned, that I had to do my part in electoral politics. Uh, I was cynical up until that point, but I knew that I had no choice if I wanted to help change the trajectory of California. Clearly, I wasn't the only one in that. And I'll also say this. It's not just a, a wave of young organizers and leaders uh, that have been making their mark over the last uh, 25 plus years. But my parents' generation, you know, they were by far not the only ones that had been here. My parents had been here for nearly 30 years with no urgency of becoming citizens. 187 changed that overnight. They knew they needed to become citizens, begin that naturalization process, not just to protect themselves, but so that they could register and that they could vote and they can have a voice in the process that impacted their lives so uh, directly. And your mom became a citizen right after you were elected the, to the L.A. City Council and your dad, uh, I guess, around that time, too? or when did Yeah, you... so my, my, my dad was the first to take the leap. Um, I remember uh, the day he came home to let us know he had begun the process. Uh, and we told him, ha-ha, the tables have turned. He used to be on us uh, every day to make sure we did our homework. And uh, now we were <laughs> the ones reminding him to study for his uh, tests as well. I, Do you remember what year that was? What, what, about when that was? Uh, that, so my dad became a citizen in about 97, I want to say. Uh, not, not exactly sure. I do remember my mom. I do remember my mom's swearing in because she was sworn in as a citizen of the United States two days after I was sworn into the Los Angeles City Council in 1999. And her big regret that is that uh, she didn't start it sooner so that she could vote for me in that first city council <laughs> race. But, you know, both of them, from the moment they became citizens, they, they've never missed an election. You brought your dad to an endorsement meeting when you were running for council, uh, the L.A. Labor Council. And uh, now, if anybody else brings their parent to, to an endorsement uh, rally, you know, that, that'd be kind of weird. But but you aced the endorsement. You got the endorsement, which is unusual. You're about 26 at the time. Why did you bring your dad? Uh, and what was, what was the significance of that? What happened there? Did he talk? Did you or do, what was the deal? Joe, you've done your homework, haven't you? Come on, what do you think? Come on, come on. The, uh, <laughs> it was important for me to take my dad to that interview because uh, in, in hindsight, like I know why I was born at Kaiser Hospital in Panorama City. And uh, as hard as my parents worked, they were able to you know, uh, put enough together to put a down payment on a, on a home uh, and uh, pay the mortgage every month, put food on the table and you know, have my, my brother and I in Little League and my sister and her activities. Uh, it was because my dad was part of the union. Uh, he's a, now a retiree of Unite Here Local 11. Uh, and and uh, so that union means a lot to me. But my reality is this. Uh, when I was in high school, the restaurant went from being union to non-union. And the first thing that went were the health benefits. 
when I was in college and talked to my dad, you know, once a week, uh, there was no such thing as cell phones or Skype. Yes. I, I, we're the same generation there. Yes. yes. And, uh, and I hear stories, not of about a 15, 20 cent an hour raise, but about a, you know, 10, 15 cent an hour reduction in his wages. When I got home from college, you know, it wasn't 40 hours a week anymore. It was 35 if he was lucky, maybe 30 hours. And before you know it, the same company that he had worked for for 35 years laid him off. And I remember the look in his eye, coming home, knowing that he couldn't provide for his family the way he wanted. That dignity was taken from him. And so I took him to that interview so that the labor leaders in that room knew that I knew what that dignity meant of a good union job and a good union contract. This uh, uh, one thing we're, we're seeing from you in, in recent weeks is, is we're seeing how the emotion uh, that's behind you, when, when you, especially when you talk about your parents, because uh, we saw it when the governor Newsom uh, uh, nominated you to be the senator. Uh, and and you, you choked up a little bit. You, you're, you get emotional here. That is that's because that's your journey. That is what what's brought you to this point now. Um, uh, you and you also interned for Senator Feinstein. We'll talk about politics here, but and and you endorsed her over Kevin DeLeon in 2018. And I know you have a lot of respect for her. But in a few days, you're sh- you've shown that you're not going to be. You're certainly not going to be a die-fi clone. She's expressed spe- skepticism about impeachment. And you said the day Trump was announced, that's an, an action you wholeheartedly support. She does not support Medicare for All or the Green New Deal. And you do, as you tweeted out the other day. Now, what do you say to folks who, who think you're going to be some sort of mar, you know, moderate, uh, a quote, business-friendly moderate, as the Wall Street Journal called you the other day, like Senator Feinstein? Uh, look, I, I uh, respect and appreciate Senator Feinstein for her support of me throughout my career. But the perspective and the life experience that I bring to the Senate is my own. Uh, and I'm going to be unabashed about it because of what I've been through and what I've seen and what I continue to see in uh, communities like mine throughout California. Um, you know, so uh, uh, definitely more progressive than Senator Feinstein. Uh, I've learned a lot from her uh, about uh, how to be effective uh, in this body. You know, if there's anybody that is effective, regardless of who's in the majority, I think it's been her uh, for decades. And there's a lot to be said for that. You know, she's been no shrinking violet if you want to talk about the history of the assault weapons ban, for example, or holding the CIA accountable through the release of uh, the torture memo a few years ago. Environmental protections, whether it's deserts in Southern California, redwoods in Northern California, uh, she's accomplished a lot. And I want to learn from that, build on that. But uh you know, are we going to agree on uh, every issue? Uh, absolutely not. And uh, I think that's what makes our democracy beautiful. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard you on MSNBC the other day. I, I detected a wee bit of shade throwing on Northern California. They said, how are you going to be different? You said, well, we, you know, we have not had a senator from Southern California in 30 years. Uh, what what does that mean? Uh, what, what, does, what will Southern California residents be getting from you that they weren't before? Yeah, no, not shade throwing. Uh, Solid if it's, uh, that's how it came across, but but it you is. You are a Dodger fact. fan, and, and you, you, but you, the you, truth, right? Oh. There hasn't been a Southern California U.S. senator uh, in, in a long, long time. I am a senator for all Californians, uh, but uh, you know we know that uh, the economy, for example, in Southern California is very different than the nature of the Bay Area, 
in northern northern california economy that's the very reason why i visited all 58 counties in the state to familiarize myself with every nook and cranny uh, of california southern california is also the the significant population base in the state of california if you draw a horizontal line on the population uh, uh, midpoint it runs right through los angeles Half the state's population lives in Los Angeles and South. Uh, so I think those are just important things to recognize as we don't just negotiate policy uh, and, and appropriations, but you know, one of Joe Biden's uh, priorities is to build back better, big investment in infrastructure. You know, the two largest ports uh, are the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach in Southern California, just one example. So uh, I think it's an important perspective to make sure is included. And uh, the two U.S. centers now have that balance that reflect the state. And uh, two more quick questions. One is I got to ask you about the, something you left behind in California, at the Secretary of State's office. Your office hired a PR firm with longstanding ties to SDK, uh, with, with to the Democratic Party, and was the client of President-elect Biden to run Vote Save California. Betty E., the state controller and fellow Democrat, person who writes the checks for the state, said your office didn't have the budgetary authority to do that. There's a 30, what, 34, $35 million bill. Who's going to get stuck with the tab with that? Will it be the taxpayers? Uh, look, here, here's the bottom line. Uh, in the Budget Act of 2020-2021, uh, the California legislature and the governor uh, mandated that the Secretary of State's office uh, execute a nonpartisan voter education campaign so that voters knew what their options were for exercising their right to vote and staying safe and healthy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and they appropriated $35 million for that. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, it was a nonpartisan uh, campaign and a very successful one. Uh, despite the, the challenges of the pandemic, record voter registration, more than 22 million voters now in the rolls, record turnout, 17.8 million uh, voters cast their ballots. Uh, that's uh, more than 3 million, more than the previous record of just four years ago. The only remaining question is which account is going to get paid out of. So between the controller, Department of Finance, you know, maybe the legislature, uh, they will make that determination. And uh, I'm not worried. The contract will be paid. And uh, we should continue many of the reforms that got us through 2020 in uh, future elections. And one more thing, what, uh, you know, uh, Fabian uh, said that, you know, if you're looking for an ex you know, exciting uh, speech, Alex is probably not your person, but he's going to be a very effective senator. And I was thinking, what do you think about when you think about in the span of 30 years in California, we've gone from Pete Wilson, the godfather of Proposition 187, to Alex Padilla, the son of immigrants affected by Prop 187. You know, as uh, Dr. Martin Luther King once said, you know, the uh, arc of history bends towards justice. Uh, what sweet justice? Uh, Governor Wilson attacked the immigrant community, tried to scapegoat Latinos. Uh, and I probably wouldn't be here uh, if it wasn't for those actions. Uh, a lot of history to correct, not just from 1994 to today, but from uh, the beginning of this nation. Uh, and uh, I'm eager to be on the forefront of it and put my shoulder into it. Senator, thank you for being on again. I look forward to many conversations with you over the years and uh, good luck. Thank you, Joe. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Senator Padilla for joining us today. Uh, a quick side note and a little peek behind the podcast curtains here. I almost never wear ties. It's just not my thing, except when I interview a senator or governor. 
And today, for about the first time in about a year, I put on a tie. Yes, even though it was a podcast and nobody would see it. I, I did it out of, uh, out of respect. I'd like to thank Karen Creighton for producing this episode. And a shout out to our fabulous theme music. That's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter if your family immigrated here last week or sailed over on the Mayflower, it's all political.